0: the new york times yeah. this past sunday there was an article about the first black punk rock group called death in the 70s and they found these old recordings i was just trying to i was trying to create an idea of how to expand rock. my name is henry rollins henry i think i know you oh i see you're a character now oh, i'll just do whatever i feel you are gonna make me scream like a white lady <laughs> Woo! shut up This is Deep Tracks, the show where we give you the entire history of rock music through podcast-sized chunks every week. I am your incomparable host, Doug, the Doc of Rock, McCullough. Uh, No, actually, no one calls me the Doc of Rock. I just kind of like how it sounded. But I'm going to tell you a story. One of the strangest experiences I've had as a parent was coming home one day to find my 14-year-old son on the website for our local chapter of the KKK Uh, It's it's probably the the first time a parent has preferred catching their child on an adult website. Now, I I should probably add some context. Um, In fact, when I first told him I would be sharing this story on my podcast, he said... Okay, but you you do tell them I'm not racist, right? So I will affirm that my son is not a closet white supremacist or anything like that. Uh, in fact, the reason why he was on that website was because we had just recently watched the movie Selma, which had come out a year or two before in 2014. Now, the, the movie is about the voting rights marches that took place in 1965 in Alabama. Um, and it opens with this... Um, really uh, jarring scene of four young black girls being killed in an explosion in the 16th street baptist church in birmingham uh, from a bomb set by the ku klux klan now the movie goes on to tell the story of other events that culminate in the the protest marches that arise and, and are led by the reverend martin luther king jr But the thing that stuck with my son was that that opening scene of those four little girls being blown up simply because of their skin color. He sort of became fixated for a while on trying to understand how such hatred could exist. And of course, you know, he knew about the existence of racism. Right. But the movie somehow brought it home in a way that he decided to do some independent research. Now, a quick side note before I continue with my story. This um this experience would actually culminate in my son finding and then calling the number for our local KKK chapter and having a um a civil but uh you know firm conversation with the man about racism and and the evils of bigotry. Um, I should probably have my son on as a guest sometimes, just so he can talk about that. I I still kind of shake my head at the guts of, you know, at that time he was just a little high school freshman. Um, you know, just the guts it took for this little 14 year old to evangelize his values to an adult stranger, you know, who comes from a world that's diametrically opposed to my sons. Um, something I certainly wouldn't have done when I was his age, but anyway, enough proud dad boasting. I'm going to move on to the point of this story. Um, now on this website that he was on when I came up from work, uh, it had a video on it that had about four or five Klansmen sitting in front of the camera And they were giving what I guess you could say is their, you know, mission statement. Uh, And I remember um, they're all wearing their hoods. Uh, A few had on like the full on robes. uh, And then a few had like just only the hood, but then like normal clothes, you know, jeans and a T-shirt, which I guess is maybe Friday casual for the clan. And one guy in particular sitting in the middle, his T-shirt that he was wearing had a heavy metal band's name and logo on it. And I couldn't stop staring at that shirt. Um, now, I honestly don't remember the name of the band he had on his shirt. And even if I did, I'm, I'm not sure they'd appreciate me mentioning them in this context anyway. But what I do remember is thinking, you know, the band that this guy loves so much probably wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the very people he hates so much. And that's what we're going to talk about today is the African roots of rock music. It began in Africa. Now, the title of this episode comes from uh, the Chemical Brothers 2001 song of the same name, which that song itself draws heavily um, on sampling from a track entitled Drumbeat by Jim Ingram, which was released in 1974. And I think most people out there understand that, that rock music is the love child of white country and Western and black rhythm and blues. But I think most people don't really know what that means or how that shakes out in the history of the music. So what we're going to do is is first I want to look at just the African and African-American musical wellsprings, which will eventually culminate in the creation of rhythm and blues. Um, and then in a later episode, we'll look at the the white folk music, Wellsprings. And then from there, we can examine the estuary where these two streams mixed together and like Swamp Thing emerging from the radioactive soup that would give him both his powers and his curse. Rock will be born. And yes, I might have been mixing some metaphors back there. That's okay. Anyway. If I were to make a family tree, (laughs) talk about mixing metaphors. If I were to make a family tree for rock music, its parents, like I said, would be country and Western and rhythm and blues. But then imagine, if you will, if we follow that family line up, the rhythm and blues side, right? So going up that that side of the family tree, we would find blues, which there is a distinction, and we'll talk about that in a later episode. But the, the blues themselves were born from field haulers and work songs from black sharecroppers and railway workers just after the Civil War. And then if we keep following that family line, we would then see spirituals and ring shouts. And then if we keep going further back, we would eventually cross the Atlantic back into Africa. So let's just take a moment just to talk about the slave trade itself. Nearly half of all African slaves came from Western and West Central Africa. So like on a modern day map, the, the countries you would see uh, in these, this region would be Senegal, Gambia, Guinea-Bissau, Mali, Angola, Congo, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and Gabon. Um, now, of course, their music would change over time. Uh, once it was brought to the Americas. But but the DNA would, would always remain the same, right? The, you know, And of course, the trip across the Atlantic was filled with unspeakable horrors and appalling conditions, followed by a lifetime in a foreign land filled with more unspeakable horrors and appalling conditions. But these would be the things that would help shape the music as it was born in Africa, the way it would evolve in the new world. Um, actually, I like the way Dan Carlin put it. In his Hardcore History podcast, he said, you know, uh, something along the lines of just one day in the life of these slaves would be enough to give any of us PTSD, let alone an entire lifetime of those days. I'm paraphrasing, but you get the point. Um, So now, uh, you know, with that in mind, music became many things to the African slaves. You know, for one thing, it was a coping mechanism, a way for them to bring a piece of home with them and find community with others sharing a similar fate. Um, It was also a way to communicate. So many cultures throughout Africa have a centuries long tradition of passing information through music, as well as using imagery and, and metaphor in music to share hidden messages and convey double meanings and all that. Um, it was also a way to assist in working in rhythm with one another and to, quite frankly, pass the time. You know, that's something all of us still do to this day, right? How many of you pull up a Spotify playlist or one of those lo fi study music channels on YouTube in order to listen to some music while you do some, you know, homework or house cleaning or any number of mundane tasks? Yeah, I mean, I still remember as a kid going on long road trips with my family, and my mom, you know, would lead us in singing songs as a way to combat the boredom of sitting in a car for hours on end too many artists rely on platforms for their success but it's time to take back control of your career we gotta take the power back. this podcast never would have happened if it hadn't been for craftsman creative first i read the book then i listened to the podcast then i reached out and received super helpful coaching from darren who is my new yoda for monetizing my creative pursuits and now I'm taking their courses to help build my creative business. Craftsman Creative is a powerful resource to help artists like you build bespoke creative businesses. They have courses, coaching, and community all ready to help you grow, as well as a weekly newsletter, which you can get for free at craftsmancreative.co. That's craftsman, M A N, creative.co. And now back to the show. <laughs> Um, now I mentioned musical DNA earlier. What I mean by that are musical elements that remain within the music, even after it evolves and, you know, forms into new species or, or genres. Um, you know, if humans can talk about things like lizard brain, then we can look at modern rock and see things like call and response or syncopation or coded messages, right? So the first of these elements I want to talk about is call and response. This is essentially when one performer or groups of performers plays or sings first followed by a second part. Now, often this happens in the form of a, you know, like a single song leader giving the call and then uh, a group of performers giving the response. Uh, but it manifests in, you know, a lot of different ways. And of course, you know, evolves with the music. So like in blues, it often is seen as like a singer gives the call and then the response comes from his or her own guitar. Um, or we can also see it as an exchange uh, between two instruments who are doing a call and response back and forth between the two of them. Um, but before we look at some kind of more contemporary examples of it, I want to look at the, what call and response sounds like in its native context. So this is, you know, before the blues, before rock. And to do that, I want to play a little bit of um, some music from the Wezi of Tanzania. Now, I know Tanzania is not anywhere near any of the regions I listed earlier for the slave trade, but I, I still like this example because, uh, for one thing, it's very audibly clear who's doing the call and who's doing the, the response. But the other thing, the other reason why I like this song is because its title is Yabilele Yararangoma. And yes, I know I butchered that title, but in English. The the title translates as this hiari dance is very foolish. <laughs> which I don't know why, I just that title makes me laugh. Um all right, so here's a little bit of of uh Yabulele Hiari Ngoma. Yabulele <laughs> n'goma. Now you can hear in that example, right, the one individual giving the call and then the group of people giving the response. I'm gonna play one more example. Um this is from an Ulimba dance called uh Kalakwamba Muziku Zimito Yalula, which that title translates as It is the Days That Change the Man. It's another great title. And I'm not sure I grasp its full meaning, but but it sounds deep, right? Um, I also like this example that I'm about to play for you uh, because, you know, it comes from a field recording made in 1949 that has actually degraded quite a bit over time. So, um, you know, when it first starts and you hear the xylophone part being played, it, it just sounds like it's like being played through an effects pedal or a filter. And I don't know, I just think it sounds kind of cool. I, um, I'm like tempted to sample it and use it in like a lo fi song or something. Anyway, here's a snippet of this example. So kind of a similar thing, right? You you have a moment where you hear a single um, caller or song leader, and then a response is given by a group of people. So if we wanted to see how this um, would eventually, you know, crop up in rock music, uh, I'm gonna play a few snippets of uh, "Boys Keep Swinging" by David Bowie, uh, Jocko Homo" by Devo, and "My Generation" by The Who. get around so in each of those examples you know you can hear kind of a similar thing where you have a single um caller right or or song leader and then a group of people giving the response um now, a great example of how call and response commonly appears in blues music is in this song, Crossroad Blues by Robert Johnson. And yes, we'll be talking a lot more about this song and this artist next episode. this example you can hear what I was talking about earlier with the musician doing his own call and and then the response comes from his guitar right um, and so there's a, that call and response between voice and guitar it's it's really something you can hear in almost all blues music uh, and even in blues based rock music like in this example I'm gonna play in a moment from Red House by Jimi Hendrix Finally, uh, when it's happening between two instruments, a great example would be this iconic team-up performance of The Thrill Is Gone by Gary Moore and B.B. King. Now, in here, you'll notice there are portions of the song where their two guitars are talking. Like, they're not really taking turns in a call-and-response sort of way. It's more conversational. You know, one is in the foreground, while the other takes the background, creating these little moments of counterpoint. Uh, But then here we get some legit call and response. And first one guitarist plays, and then the other copies him, and then the next look is played. So back and forth. But you'll notice that um, they're each giving their own little flavor to it each time. So it's not like an exact copy, but more like a collaboration on the same idea. Um, A really famous instance of this in bluegrass music uh, is in the iconic scene in the movie Deliverance where Ronnie Cox's character is playing dueling banjos with that kind of scary looking kid on the porch. But that's the only part of that movie I want to talk about. Uh, Another important element from African music that has come to shape almost all of American popular music, especially jazz, is syncopation. Now, syncopation is basically where the emphasis is given on the weak part of the beat rather than on the strong part. So this really um, crappy example that I made, I threw it together. Uh, You can hear the drums playing on the beat, just kind of straight. And then you'll hear a guitar come in playing off the beat, which is syncopated. finally hidden or coded messages this is something that becomes a big deal in blues and especially hokum blues which we'll we'll be talking about later but the roots of this practice we can see in a lot of the old slave spirituals Um, now spirituals are a form of christian music that used biblical symbolism to merge uh, sub-saharan african musical traditions with the experiences of being a slave so images of Moses leading the Israelites to the promised land and crossing the river Jordan were particularly common. Now spirituals were perhaps most famously used as a means of secret communication for the underground railroad. They they would actually give directions and other information through the words of song so that, you know, quite often when the white masters heard what they thought were just some happy slaves singing was actually a lot more. Uh, I like how Arthur Jones put it in his book, Wade in the water, the wisdom of spirituals. He said, the singers successfully masked their rage with the manifest image of death, safely deceiving the slaveholder holder into believing that his docile and passive slaves were again dreaming of heaven, but thankfully loyal in the present to his unrelenting demands for service. Skillfully, the singers affirmed their inner loyalty to a legitimate heavenly master but also announced their determination to take up arms against the earthly master. There's a pretty good article on Medium that talks about the underground Railroad's use of hidden messages and music, which I'll link in the show notes. Um, One of the examples the article talks about is the song Wade in the Water, the, the lyrics of which speak on the surface about the act of baptism and biblical figures such as Moses. But as it says in the article, quote, legend has it that Wade in the Water, which used Biblical imagery to evade suspicion was used by Harriet Tubman to tell fugitive slaves how to avoid capture. If they thought they were being followed, hiding in the water would conceal them and throw bloodhounds off their scent. Moses refers to Tubman herself, who led hundreds from slavery into freedom on the Underground Railroad, end quote. Now, spirituals would eventually give birth to gospel music, but for our purposes, we will make particular mention of how their vocal inflections are part of the DNA of blues music. And actually, that's where we're going to pick up with next episode is the birth of the blues. But until then, you can access a transcript of this episode on my website, deeptrackspodcast.com where you can also sign up for my newsletter and gain access to the show notes, more resources for any rabbit holes you'd like to go down in your own research, as well as some fun merchandise designed by yours truly. Thank you so much for listening.